0: alaikum I hope you guys are doing well. Happy Saturday. Um, again, my apologies to the interactive group because I had serious fasting brain and I forgot to let everyone know there that we were starting an hour late. So I'm so sorry. And um, thank you for being so patient with us. And we're just really excited that you're all here. Um, I First, I wanted to start with a little bit of good news on the adopt-a-surah front. Um, yesterday, I got an email that someone is adopting Surah al fatiha for $10,000, alhamdulillah. So um, I wanted to just ask everyone to make dua and pray because it's just really um, amazing and lovely. And, um, you know, especially I think this Ramadan, um, people are... Um, are noticing a drop in fundraising um, across the board? I'm not really sure, you know, if people are having you know a lot of financial difficulty or anything like that. But so, um, you know, I'm so grateful when people come forward and support what we're doing. I mean, obviously, I really passionately believe that this is the hope for the future. Um, understanding the Quran in a way that is really relevant for our life and our times. And I don't know that I. I mean, there's nothing else out there that is as exciting and hopeful and inspirational um and challenging so um, i'm just extremely grateful when people um show their support you know with everything from a five dollar donation to you know ten thousand dollar donation so thank you so so much um, i thought very quickly um you know as we've been unpacking the library we've been dis- discovering just amazing things that were probably lost for decades but um this was not one of them but I wanted to um give a little bit of book history today which i thought was kind of fun this is like an orange little copy it's called the authoritative and the authoritarian Um, a little treatise and pamphlet which started out this was published way back in the 90s and it was a little case study of a fatwa of um, a basketball player named abdul raouf who refused to stand up for the national anthem And it became a thing in Muslim um, circles because everyone and their brother was coming out and pulling hadith here and pulling hadith there. And, you know, people arguing why it was halal or haram for him to do that. And so at that time, um, the professor decided to write just a really short treatise on using that case study to demonstrate Sharia in action and that, you know, you can't just like pick and choose individual hadith here and there and use that as a basis for a legal ruling and so he took that case and um and demonstrated how you know actually it it should work and it was a fabulous little book and what's interesting is this expression authoritative and authoritarian became sort of like a catchphrase like before this book came out no one would refer to things as authoritative or authoritarian but as soon as this book came out and it started to circulate everyone then started using these terms like okay how do you know what's authoritative versus authoritarian which is sort of interesting Um, so this book was published um, in um, at the Islamic Center of Southern California, interestingly, um through there um they had like a publishing arm called MBI where they would also publish the Minaret magazine which is where a lot of the chapters from the Conference of the Books were originally published before they were collected into this volume which is the Search for Beauty Conference of the Books, an amazing book and I just want to plug it this is like um really it's it's an incredible book because it takes you it's um through real-life stories, through a journey through our tradition, and learning about jurists in, in you know previous times and places. Um, the premise of the book, it's actually based on this library here. Um, so the Conference of the Books is the idea that people would write to the Sheikh, um, asking questions about everything under the sun with regard to Muslim life in America. And he would then retreat into this library in the evening and have these conversations with jurists, from the past, and the jurists would be represented in these books. So it's like a conference of the books, a conference with jurists. And the premise would be, you know, God is beautiful and God loves beauty. And what would be the most beautiful moral way to solve whatever problem was at hand at that particular time of the night? And so he got all kinds of questions, you know, about everything from marriage, divorce, you know, um, dealing with your parents, obedience versus respect, Um, things that were more popular like terrorism, um, just, you know, basically everything that touched upon life in America as a Muslim struggling to find your faith, tr- struggling to, you know, find your way. Um, and so this is written in, in chapters which are individual short stories. And it's beautiful. This book, as I've said many times, has brought people back to the faith. Like we get these amazing letters and that say, you know, this is the book that that saved my faith. I always thought that Islam was beautiful, but I never actually saw it articulated that way. Um, and so it's a really lovely gift. So if, you know, you're thinking about sending um, gifts for Ramadan, um, I would highly recommend, you know, the gift of knowledge. And, and, just, and if you haven't read it yourself, please do. It's really easy because you could just, like, put it on your bedside, flip it open, and whatever chapter opens up, you can read it that night. It's just a few pages, and it just takes you to another place. Um, so anyway, um, but this book, um, so that was the minaret. But interestingly, so this book became the seed for two other books. This book was sort of published uh, not in a very, you know, high-quality way. Basically, you read it once and it falls apart. Um, But the ideas are timeless and amazing. Um, And this then actually became two books, um, or the seeds for two other books. One is And God Knows the Soldiers, um, The Authoritative and Authoritarian in Islamic Discourses, and also Speaking in God's Name, Islamic Law, Authority, and Women. Um, and the, they both deal with the whole issue of authority and how you determine what is authentic in the Islamic tradition, and the professor puts out his methodology. This little book is a gem. Um, not many people know about it, and it was never really marketed, but it's made its way, it's like survived and is oftentimes um, assigned in univer- university classes. This book has this book in it, so it's got you know the complete text from this, but it's also got additional chapters, which were like afterthoughts and things that happened after this book came out. Cause there was a lot of controversy that came out, a lot of discussion about it. Um, and even in a, there's a little footnote in here that references hijab, which made a huge stink. Um, and so he actually then develops a lot of these ideas and, and addresses what happened. Um, but this book is what I would call sort of Sharia in action. Um, It's not like um, The Great Theft, which I don't have here, but The Great Theft is more of a, like, if you're learning Islam and trying to understand from, like, a a textbook class, that's more appropriate for that. This book is sort of like a case study in action plus a little bit more, and um, it's not as difficult as some of his other writings, but I would highly, highly recommend it because I think it's just a really special, special book. Speaking in God's name is the one that a lot of people find when they are trying to understand women's issues, and it's like it goes through Saudi Fatawa on women, um, and he, you know, breaks down the methodology that the Saudis put out um, and critiques it, um, and then puts forth his own um, methodology as well. It's a really powerful book for anyone who is engaged in any issues regarding women, um, and you know what, um, all of the garbage that's out there that you know against women. Um, And then, of course, I would just have to say this is his latest book, Reasoning with God, which is kind of like the magnum opus so far. Um, It's his, you know, it's a lot of everything. It's personal stories, it's philosophy, it's history, um, it's Basically a scholar's lifetime and his the way his intellectual thought developed over time Um, It's it's not you know, it's not a really easy read in parts It is very easy when he talks about stories But it's like everything you ever want to know about the state of affairs in Islam um, for today, so um, Anyway, uh, there's there's even more but these are some of the gems that I wanted to share and I hope that, you know, if you just need some quiet time with a book, that you will pick one of these. But start with them. Um, people often ask, like, where do I start? This search for beauty is the best place to start because it's very engaging, very interesting, based on real-life stories. Um, and it, it will change your view of Islam and, and how you know it in this world so or in this context in America. So I'm very excited for another Halakha. Thank you very much. And um, please consider adopting a surah or um, adopting a bookcase in the library, if you
1: can. And inshallah, thank you. <laughs> i how you i not how how do I. You see these things on
0: the
1: side? Um, just this. No, nice cuts. Yeah. Like how do I get them Oh, okay, so you, you reduce that. What do
0: you what do you want
1: to do? Uh actually you sort of did it. Yeah, okay, you sort of so you did it. I want to see both texts at the same okay, time. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so inshallah today uh we'll do surat Sabah. I, um, I apologize for the late start, um, and, uh, physically struggling a little bit. Um, but inshallah, we'll plunge in. So... Surat Saba is Meccan, it's a Mecciya, Surah Mecciya. In the tradition there is a debate as to whether it was revealed shortly before Surat al-Isra or whether it was uh, among the surah that was revealed after Surah Al Isra, um, so whether it is a pre Al Isra Al Maraj or a post Al Isra Al Maraj, um, w- without getting into all the 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 back and forth and the, um, I think that it is far more likely that it was revealed after the Isra'ul-Ma'raj rather than before the israul Miraj, uh, And in fact, I think that Surat Sabah was revealed after Luqman um, and probably before Surat Zumar and Surat Ghafir. We, we didn't do the command, but we did the Zumar and we did Ghafar. Um, so if so, then it would belong to the late Meccan period uh, rather than sort of the late m- middle period. Um, And the, the the reason I think so has to do with chains of transmission. It doesn't have to do anything with the substance of the surah itself. Allahu'alam, you know, uh, sometimes there's just, there is no way for us to, to conclusively pin down, um, a time of revelation, especially when the reports about occasions of, rever- of revelation as Bab al uh, surrounding a particular surah uh, are not decisive. Okay, so it was said in my view that it is post-Isra, and it, um, yet like all Mekkan it sets an anchor for Muslims, the, a, another building block in the aqaid al islamia or the, the fundamental beliefs, um, structure of the Islamic faith. A lot of the Meccan are foundational. It is upon, everything is built upon these foundations. And it is a methodological error to fail to read what comes later in light of what comes earlier. And it is among the surah that starts with alhamdulillah, which there are five surah in the Quran that start with that expression, alhamdulillah. The uh, al although it's, there's a debate as to whether Fatḥ starts with Bismillah Rahman Rahim or Alhamdulillah. Al-An'am, there's no debate as to Al-An'am, of course. Al-Kahf and Fāṭir, and then Seven. And as we will see, the, the beginning of the Surah is not coincidental. It is core to what the message of Surat Seva is. And Surat Seva, while at first appearance seems to just respond to the claims of Meccans to to do what people who are not, who don't pay careful attention, they think the Quran does all the time and that is to respond to criticisms of uh, those who doubted um, the Prophet ﷺ. Uh, it, It has an ethical, core ethical message as we will see and it communicates to us the, it talks about the Prophet Dawood, alayhis It talks briefly about the Prophet Sulaiman, alayhis salam. It talks about Saba, the kingdom of Saba itself, which was a Yemeni kingdom, which we'll talk a little, about, a little bit about um and like uh, like the like we usually do the question is why these stories in the context of this particular surah in the way that these stories are said and what is the point that we get from them okay وقال الذين كفروا لا تأتينا الساعة قل Ali وربّي لا تأتينكم عالم الغيب لا يعجز عنهم إثقال ذرة في السماوات ولا في الأرض ولا أصغر من ذلك ولا أكبر إلا في كتاب مبين. Okay, so it starts out الحمد لله. الذي له ما في السماوات وما في الأرض وله الحمد في الآخرة وهو الحكيم الخبير الحمد لله to God affirming the all of creation whether what is in the heavens or earth is contingent and thoroughly dependent on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that this world, although, as we will see it might appear to human beings that it is not already in all its details and particulars claimed by its owner. Although it might appear to human beings that they are autonomous in this world, in this entire universe of creation or that they own it, the delusion of ownership and the delusion that ultimately they are sovereigns within this world. The Quran time and again affirms that in order not to go down the path of that delusion you must understand that you are existing in something that is owned by another. And in fact, we we know that in the Islamic outlook, and as we see in Surah Saba itself, that all human ownership, all human ownership, go through the divine will, meaning that in fact, ultimately it is God that owns. We are simply entrusted. Surat 7 is revealed after the Quran tells human beings that the trust was offered to the heavens and the earth and that they failed to carry it, and human beings carried it. And after the revelation of that ayah, I believe in Surah to Zumar, time time and again, the Quran emphasizes that your position in this world or human humans in the world are trustees in what is owned by another. In fact, your bodies, your money, your wealth is all simply things that you are entrusted with, not things that you own. And as we will see, it, it, there's a reason why it starts this way, but then one of the things that you find commentaries, Quranic commentators or Quranic commentaries talking about, is that why does it start say, "Alhamdulillah, Allah that owns the ma fi wal-arḍ." Alhamdulillah, Allah owns heavens, earth, and then repeats again, "Wallahu and again, repeats and praise to God. Praise to God. Specifically, um, in the hereafter. And although you know, different commentators have suggested different things. Um, but I believe that the right answer is that critical and core to Surat Sabah is that this creation is entirely frivolous if there were no ultimate consequences to human existence that in fact hikmah which again Surat Saba will underscore wisdom itself the principles of justice require the akhir require the hereafter mandate the hereafter and so it is a the next stage of human understanding, to be grateful for, in fact, the existence of the thing that they fear the most. And as we will see in Surat Saba, Surat Saba draws a picture of human beings and the extent to which they try to dilute the idea of consequences and the hereafter, that they try to um, water down the idea in 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 a variety of ways. And the reason they do that, it's not because they are confident of their fate if there is a hereafter. It is the human beings that are most prone to doubting the hereafter are those who, in the truth of their soul, they are most worried about the hereafter. There are many human beings that claim that they are not worried and that they're not concerned and that they have a great relationship with Allah, or that they're fine, or that they're in good standing. But you will also find that they are the ones that will often think to themselves, is, really going to, is there really going to be a hereafter? Are there really going to be consequences? Is it really going to happen? And it is this state of doubt is not because they are in fact confident about their fate if there is a hereafter. But it is because within themselves their, their subconscious wishes that there isn't a hereafter. That there are no consequences. And so when the surah starts out with these double hunts, the second hunt specifically, and we will see how the, the, the surah itself develops, specifically for the concept of the hereafter, i.e. for the concept of justice. It is the concept that human beings have the greatest difficulty with. Because strict justice, in which nothing escapes God, no, no privilege, no in- aggression, no transgression, no nothing escapes God, is the boogeyman that makes human beings anxious, and is the real cause for much of their stated doubt. This is why often you find those who are in fact um, the least worried about the, their fate in the hereafter are the ones that tend to doubt the least. You know, it, it's uh, the
0: the
1: they're at peace with the concept of um, ultimate justice because they, within their own soul, they know that they're in good standing. But that's not the case with the vast majority of human beings, as Surat Sabah tells us in a second. اوك وهو الحكيم الخبير حكيم The wise and khabir, they translated as aware. This is a study of Quran, as you guys know. The hikmah is required for justice, for akhirah to warrant alhamd. If the hereafter will warrant gratitude it requires hikmah, it requires wisdom, because the constituent foundation for justice is hikmah. But hikmah is not possible without precise knowledge. Any claimed wisdom without a foundation of precise knowledge is a mirage. And so it is quite the. I mean, the 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 um, uh, the um, precision of the Quran is quite remarkable. That wa lahu al hamd fil akhirah wa al hakim al khabir. In the order, and then right away the surah Sabah gets closer to the topic, to the main point. <inaudible> this is a God that has intimate knowledge of everything. Everything that dwells on Earth, everything that is beyond Earth, um, In Qur'anic commentaries, they will often point out to a, a, a sort of a, a grammatical issue, فيها, that, um, I mean, we, I, I don't usually stop at points of grammar because it's not, if, you know, when you're talking to non-Arabic speakers, it's not, it doesn't communicate well to them. Um, but let me see how they translated it, maybe. He knows what enters the earth and that which issues therefrom, that which descends from the heaven and that what ascends hereto. Yeah, uh, they just translated ascends hereto. Um, If if someone is interested in, in knowing the difference between Ruju ila and yaruju fi, ask me in the QA. and um, For for those who, uh, they, I mean, it's it's um, yeah. Why why does Allah talks about al-aruj fi as instead of al-aruj ila as But that's for for now. I'm not gonna pause it. Okay. So Allah is fully aware, so you exist in a purposeful world where nothing is simply not even the smallest thing, nothing is simply um, away from the sovereign site, and all interactions between this world and everything that surrounds this world in this massive, uh, in this massive, um, what is the word I'm looking for, Uh, that surrounds the earth. The atmosphere? The, the, the massive u- universe that surrounds this earth. Um, God is intimately aware of all and involved with all. rahim rahimul ghafur that as this actually is something that pointed out by a number of Quranic commentators, that it takes a great deal of amount of compassion and mercy to sustain life on this earth the way it is sustained. Because it requires constant interventions by the divine to keep life on this earth protected the way it is protected, and this will harken back to something that we will hear about the people of Seba. That you might, you know, if you're tempted to think that the safety that you enjoy in your life on Earth, the the and the violence that you see all around in the universe is a coincidence. It's not. It takes the involvement, intimate involvement of God from one moment to the other for this life to be preserved and that it is a Merciful God and a constantly forgiving God, a God who does not, as we will see from the story that the, the, the stories that will be given to us in Surah Seba, is a God that doesn't carry a grievance. Um, if this was a vengeful God, like the God of the, the old testament, who's often angry, and vindictive, and uh, and so on. The continuation of life would not materialize. Because in fact, the rule that God constantly has from God's creation is ingratitude and as we will see certain delusions, delusions that are fundamentally inconsistent with God's sovereignty and God's ownership of this universe. Okay. وقال الذين كفروا لا تاتينا الساعه قل بلى وربي لتاتينكم عالم الغيب عالم الغيب لا يعزب عنه مثقال ذره في السماوات ولا في الارض ولا اصغر من ذلك ولا اكبر الا في كتاب مبين so right to the core issue which we 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 got a sense of at the beginning of the surah they say the the hereafter will not be that the hour will never come upon us meaning that there is no hereafter and they get a very decisive response, and a response um, in, in the Arabic, it's, it's a very confident, cool, collected response, which is lost in the English translation. Because, Bala wa it's like saying, it's, it's literally like if you tell me there is no hereafter, and I sort of snicker and say, um, I've got news for you. No, it is coming. Bala or Rabbi, it's that type of response. Um, well, no, you're just simply flatly wrong. And it's interesting that then the, resp- the immediate commentary about this is you're flatly just just flat out wrong. There is hereafter. There is accountability. What's interesting is that then it do, the, Allah doesn't, uh, Allah comments on this by again affirming that there is nothing s- bigger or smaller than the smallest seen thing, is and the Arabs used to believe that the Zara is the smallest thing. So when the Quran said something smaller than a Zara, I mean, in our days, it doesn't surprise us that there is something smaller than a Zara, but in the prophets days, the, this caused the Arabs to sort of sneer at the prophet and say, well, there's nothing smaller than a Zara. So how can God know something smaller than a Zara? Because there's nothing smaller than a Zara. Of course, we know now that there there are things smaller than a but an interesting note. but that as we will see the issue in their in their disbelief is not an intellectual position where they have rejected. Um, rejected a creator and a manager of the universe. But it will go back to a certain type of human delusion that we'll talk about. Um, A certain type of egoism which resists the idea that this world has an owner and that that owner gets to call the ethical norms for creation and that that owner gets to define what is right and what is wrong and that that owner has decreed the principle of justice which these people, fundamentally, are afraid of. So, do do you follow the point? Is that instead of further elaborating upon that there is hereafter, Allah simply reaffirms the point that nothing in this world is happenstance. I know you're tempted to want to believe for a variety of reasons as we will see that things just happen in this world and it's all coincidence and that all types of things go unaccounted for or unnoticed. But that's precisely your error. Um, I don't remember where I read this, this, but Jafar saw the one of his comments about Surah Sabah. saba um Tajalla al Hakku ta'ala fi kilamihi walakin la tash'urun that Allah has already manifested In the revelation. But it's just that you feel you fail to see that. That in fact for those who say, Well, we we don't see Allah, or we don't experience Allah, or we don't touch Allah, well, Allah has actually fully manifested in the revealed word. It's just that you are not seeing that because of your own weaknesses and your own problems. Okay. So nothing escapes God's knowledge and nothing is happenstance. Kitab Mubin normally it's translated um, in a book or something to that effect. Um, sorry, sorry. Yeah, instead of Qur'an, but it isn't a clear book. Illa fi kitab mubin is not necessarily a a book. Illa fi kitab mubin means it, it could be figuratively, metaphorically, mean according to a clear set of rules. that Everything is according to laws that the sovereign has put into place in existence. Okay, ayatina okay. muajizin min ila al Hamid. وقال الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا هَلَّا دُلُّكُمْ عَلَى رَجُلٍ يُنْبِئْكُمْ إِذَا مُزِّقْتُمْ كُلَّ مُمَزَّقٍ أَنَّكُمْ لَفِي خَلْقٍ جَدِيدٍ So this is now we are at, um, okay, but first let's go back to four and five. Accountability, the principle of accountability is affirmed in five. وَالَّذِينَ سَعُوا في The study Quran translates it as those who endeavor to thwart our signs. فِي آيَاتِنَا مُعَاجِزِينَ Those who, how do I put it? Um, a a is someone who is an obstructionist. So how are you an obstructionist to God's signs? There is something in you that is threatened, and as we'll see it's threatened because of certain delusions, but it's threatened by the sovereignty of the sovereign, and it is threatened by the very idea that you are simply a trustee, not an owner, And it is threatened by the very idea of a purposeful existence. And ultimate accountability and the principle of justice. So, your reaction to this is not simply that you don't believe, but you actively want to deny that reality. And how do you actively deny that reality? Well, one is the example that the Surat Saba gives us, is where you go around calling the prophet a liar or, or insane or possessed. But There could be many other forms to imoages. Imoages could be where you mock anyone that you see, or you have you exude an attitude of arrogance and superiority towards believers, or you are addicted to skepticism for the sake of skepticism, which we encountered earlier, where every time you experience a point of repose or tranquility, your worst self, your dark self, immediately pulls you away from that state of repose of tranquility, into a state of skepticism and doubt. In Mu'ajiz, you could have trope questions where no matter what response, what intellectual answer you get to these trope questions, are these same questions that you keep insisting on having unanswered. That's also Mu'ajiz. Um, and, and, you know, the examples are many, but Muajas Mu'ajiz is, is not just a someone who doesn't believe but and but someone who is has an, a, a denial itch it it's sort of they, they have inside of them um it's as if they 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 feel it in their in their chest they they're constantly want to die they they feel like they want to deny. And a lot of times they don't understand why they want to deny. But they want to deny. And every time, even when they meet someone that could start drawing closer to tranquility and peace, to Iman, they ruin that friendship. They ruin the relationship. And they run to the person who will affirm their anxieties. If they find themselves in any type of social situation, they go to a mosque and they pray Jama in the mosque and they feel something because the voice of the imam reaches their heart. The next thing they know, they're making excuses not to go pray behind that same imam again. It's a It's a prototype of a human being. In a long time ago, I knew a friend who attended a halakha, Sheikh Sharawi, who's a Quran commentator on on the Quran. And Sheikh Sharawi had a very charismatic personality in a way that attracted a lot of people. And I could see that this guy was sitting during the halakha, and he was smiling, and he was really into it. The minute we left the mosque, I could see the anxiety form on his face. He was in there, smiling, and I could tell he was at peace. He was impressed by what he was hearing but we stepped outside the mosque and I could see the anxiety. And I knew the minute I said, how was it? I knew what his response was going to be. Well, I don't know. I'm confused, predicted, absolutely. The addiction, because the illness in the heart, is a serious illness and he's not possessed, he can help himself, but that denial comes from a weakness that he doesn't want to confront. Okay. Ulaiika lahum azabun min rijs alim. Riz. This is five. Um. Oh, no, they just they just said painful punishment of torment. Min rijs alim is painful. Riz is something that is heavy, so it's a heavy, heavy punishment, heavy, painful punishment. And a Riz is when you, in, in this context, is when you deserve something you've earned your state of uncleanliness you you've earned the impurity of your condition so in sufi-esque tafsirs in sufi-esque tafsirs they, they, they often say that for this person the worst punishment is that they get to see the true ugliness of their soul without filters in the hereafter. And when, when they see the amount of arrogance, the amount of ingratitude, the amount which they are committed to a Egocentric existence—it's—it's um, it, it, uh, it's horrifying. It's like being dirty without any hope of being ever being clean. And six is affirming something that the Quran often affirms, we're not gonna pause at it long, that it is the people of knowledge, real knowledge, who are most often um, the one who can understand the wisdom of the revelation. And then in we start in seven getting an example of those who are muajizin, those who are obstructionists. And it starts out with something that sounds like mockery because they are saying, shall we tell you about a man who says something very odd. You won't believe what this man says. What does this man say? This man says that after our bodies have completely become scattered, the water evaporates we dry up we end up in the stomach of or i don't know in in, you know whatever these things that ate human bodies the little insects you know uh the the millions and millions of them leave alone any scavenging animals that might scavenge a body you know the whole disintegration the, the water that evaporates from human bodies, God knows how it recirculates, human body disintegrates into dust, into ashes, whatever, it again it is um, circulates back again into existence, but fundamentally nothing remains of this human body, and this man is saying that after human body reaches that state, somehow we are coming back again. Now, of course, the man that they're referring to is Muhammad, alayhi But why are they saying, shall we tell you about a man? They're mocking the Prophet. They're making fun of him. And it's like saying, Can we, shall we tell you about a guy who's saying really crazy stuff? It's the same thing. Indeed, this this man is either a liar or who's, he is outright possessed by Jen, and that's why he's cr- saying these crazy things. And in verse nine, أَفَلَمْ يَرَوْا إِلَى مَا بَيْنَ أَيْدِيهِمْ وَمَا خَلْفَهُمْ مِنَ وَالْأَرْضِ نخسف بهم نخسف بهم الارض او نسقط عليهم كسفا من السماء ان في ذلك لايه لكل عبد منيد Verse 9 on the one hand is the threat that if Allah would have wanted there would be no rahim and there would be no ghafur and life wouldn't continue to exist if Allah would have wanted, you wouldn't exist. And that's an obvious point. Don't they see that as they mock this man that in fact we could bring very easily an end to their entire existence. But the the one, the the point that deserves a, a bit of a pause is that Fascinating Quranic expression Efalam Yaro, Illa Mabena, Idihu, Wamakhal Fahum, Minasama, Evil Ord. Don't they see what is that which is before them and what that is? Uh, which is before them and that which behind them. No. Um, what is between their hands before them and behind them in the heavens and earth. It's one thing to say, don't they see the heavens and earth before them and behind them? But when you say, what is between their hands before them and behind them in the heavens and earth, it only begs the question of well, what is built between their hands before them and behind them in the heavens and earth. It's like saying, don't they look to the reality that is right there at their fingertips, in the heavens and earth, all so surrounding them. And of course the literalists, you know, they 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 didn't pause at this very long. The people who paused at this were the Sufi-esque tafsirs. Um, and the more Sufi the tafsir, the, the longer the pause. I think it's very fair to say that. that because it begs the question, of, a, of what is the nature of reality that is right there between, at your fingertips and between your hands? Um, if, if I make a fist in space, am I actually holding emptiness? Or am I holding something? One of the most interesting comments I've read about this, because it was written centuries ago. Um, and I I couldn't fi- if if uh, if you guys figure out wh- uh, where I read, this, let me know. Um, commentator said you know if you have two serendical spheres uh, spheres that go around and as long as you can pass something between them it means there's no it's not empty space so as long as you can pass Anything, regardless of how, even you know, even if it's extremely thin. So there, he uses this to say that, in fact, every time you are not holding a void, you are actually holding. Of course, this is before we know that there are atoms and you know stuff like that. But in saying that you are. There is always substance. It's just that you, we don't see it. We sometimes can experience its effect. We can do experiments to realize its existence, to demonstrate its its existence, but we don't know its true nature. And it's, again, this is centuries before we are aware of atoms and all of that. And he's saying, how could it be that creation can be so full of things, even when to the eyes it appears like empty space, but in fact, it's never empty space. If there isn't a creator. I mean, again, something written like 600 years ago, in my my notes I wrote, this was written 600 years ago, but I didn't write who I was reading. Go figure! Um, to my great frustration, uh, it's fascinating. Now, in Sofia Tafsir they 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 say this that in fact the the only thing between your hands, right before you and behind you, in the heavens and in the earth, that as you go through the steps of irtiqa you eventually realize that the only thing that is truly between your hands is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. that that's the only real existence and that in fact Allah occupies all the space around you wherever there is Allah is not it wherever Allah is absent in space. This, there is darkness and deterioration. And there is the demonic. That's typical Sufi esque. Um, but wherever Allah is, there is life and existence. And in our language, energy. Of course, they didn't say energy. But there is power, as they would say, there is quwwah. Okay, then after nine, the surah starts taking us to the main central point because it starts telling us about Dawood and it will tell us about Sulaiman and then it will tell us about Saba. And with Dawood, what it chooses to tell us is something that we've been exposed to already that Dawood was given, that nature supplicated with Dawood. And we already saw that in in a previous tafsir but here it takes us from a different angle so waqad atayna dawood minna fadla ya jibalu awbi Mahu wat-tayr okay so the mountains are going to supplicate, they're going to resonate with the supplications of Dawood. And so well, the ta'ir, everything that flies. Dawood is in completely in touch with nature. One of the most interesting things, again, I read about the supplications of the mountains is Dawood reportedly had a very beautiful voice. And it said that the mountains, when Dawood would sing, Allah gave him a voice where the mountains was would echo with this with the singing. But while normal human voice the echo is incomplete, or quickly fades away. The echoing of the mountains with woods supplications, or woods voice was supernal. Um, it's interesting that in some mountainous areas, the echo that you hear is actually not weak at all. I'm not saying that echo was the supplications of the mountains, um, but it the relations between echo and in fact one of the sources says that the the re, that the echoes that we hear in mountainous areas are sort of a leftover from the powers of Dawood, but that's just you know there's just a speculation, but. Dawood's voice and supplications are thoroughly in touch with nature, and nature responds to these supplications in perfect harmony. Now, this is a very different image of Dawood in the Quran. The the image you get of Dawood in the Quran of David is very different than the Bible, and same with Solomon. Both in, in the David and Solomon in the Bible are sort of brutes. Solomon, in fact, is sort of a, not really a believer in God. He he worships. He's a he's a mushrik. He he, he worships idols. He uh, you know he marries two hundred women. He has five hundred concubines. Um, The image of Solomon and Dawood in the Bible as pious um, human beings with with beautific powers is something quite unique to the Quran itself. But this is not just it. Dawood was given in his not just an, an intimate relationship with nature and a realization of the truth of existence, that all of this existence is fully cognizant of the sovereign. It's like um you know, again, to, to just bring it closer to one's mind, uh, when, when you read, so, you know, Eastern wisdom and they they tell you that, you know, it, all the Eastern religions become fully aware that everything is living from the soil to the trees, to the grass, to the leaves, to the, and that everything has an energy and every, I mean, it's the same basic idea, but Dawood is able to communicate in a way that fully resonates and interacts with all living things. Okay. But then we are told of something else, وَأَلَنَّا لَهُ الْحَدِيدِ سَابِغَاتٍ وَقَدْرُ فِي السِّرْدِ وَعَمَلُّوا إِنِّي بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ What is it talking about here? Well, al-Hadid In classical sources it tells you that Dawood was given the power to shape iron. That he would touch iron and it would mold to his will. I don't believe that that's but Dawood had. What Dawood had, in my humble opinion, he was given the knowledge, the technology of ironworks and his big technological advancement was the ability to build war shields that were not too light as to be worthless protection and not too heavy so that it becomes an obstruction to fighters. Dawood was able technologically to use iron to build shields that were sturdy but light enough for battle. And that Technological know how made all the difference. For remember, we go from Musa, and we've already been to the technological advancements of Dawood, and then the technological advancements of Suleiman, his son. But contrary to the Bible, where Dawood basically is a warmonger, in the Quran, that technological advancement is used to do good. Okay. So there's a leap in the technological advancement. And subhanAllah, Centuries later, we are going to divide periods in human history. You guys still remember the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age? It's very interesting that what it underscores is iron work as a major advancement. But next, we come to Suleiman. And Suleiman's description is fascinating. Was Suleiman a reha, gudu wa shahrun wa rewahua shahr. Wasna lahu ain al kittr. Womena jinni, may yamalu bayna yadeh beizni rabbi. Womena yazag minhum amrina nuzikhu min azabi sair. يعملون له ما يشاء من محاريب وتماثيل وجفان كالجواب وقدور راسيات اعملوا آل داود شكرا وقليل من عباد الشكور Okay. This is 13. So, um, Just take not making of him whatsoever he will, places of worship, statutes, basins like reservoirs and cauldrons, firmly anchored, work, family of the wooden fancifulness, though few of my servants are thankful. So, what is Suleiman given, or we're told about what Suleiman is given here? This very fascinating reference or allusion to Suleiman using wind to travel. And the study quran cells says molten copper, which is an Idan Has, the ability to the technological know-how to use another, another metal as strong as iron, but lighter. But in the case of Suleiman, we also know the special relationship with jinn. And that jinn, in some reports, although none of it we can say is we, we, you know, we can rely on its authenticity that the jinn even built the temple uh, on the mount for Sulayman. Um Other reports are just we know from our earlier tafsir that Suleiman is also, has the technological know-how to use glass in buildings. We saw that with Queen of Sheba already, if you remember. So it is another leap in human ability the only thing I, I want to say about this jinn issue with uh, Sulaiman is it's quite, I don't know if you guys ever um, watched that series, Ancient Aliens, the, on the History Channel. Um, you know, a lot of the puzzling things that shows like ancient aliens raise um, would be easily resolved if the jinn are the aliens. Um, and their involvement in human life until Sulaiman, alayhi salam I think is actually a, a, an absolute reality. Um... In a a lot of different ways but of course you know the we don't we don't know we we don't have a lot of archaeological evidence about Sulaiman himself but we know we do have archaeological evidence of civilizations that existed around this time and there are a lot of very puzzling things about these civilizations okay the jinn believe the jinn, especially the jinn that Suleiman forces into labor for him, and uh, believe that they are, they, they, there's a long established tradition in, in Islamic sources that before human beings, jinn existed on earth. And that among the rebellion of shaitan is that they believed that they were the rightful inheritors of earth. But Allah put human beings on earth. And that these jinn that ultimately ended up serving Suleiman believed that they own the Earth and that they are far more intelligent than human beings and that they are far more technologically advanced and technologically able than human beings. And that as a result, it is absurd that God would ask Jin to share Earth with human beings because... Human beings are clearly not as intelligent, or that's at least what these jinn thought, and they simply do not know how to do the things that jinn are capable of doing. But there was a further mythology that the jinn insisted on a parable of delusion, if you will, that the Qur'an presents us with, and that is, they know what human beings do not know, they know al-ghayb, the hidden. And so, When so, when Allah gives Suleiman the ability to subjugate some jinn, the rebellious jinn, to his service, some choose to disobey. And we don't know, other than Allah telling us that they 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 will receive their, their due in the hereafter, we don't know what, what happens to them. Uh, there are reports that there there was But it's not a reliable report that those who chose to disobey were um, zapped in some, some, some form of fire or something. But anyway, we don't need to posit that report. But their haughty and arrogant attitude of superiority was firmly adhered to because there is, they the, the firmly believe that if it hadn't been for the fact that God forced forced them into Suleiman's service, there is nothing that human beings can, there's nothing that they can possibly um, escape their knowledge. And there comes the story that I'm sure all of you have heard of, you've heard of the Suleiman's cane? That he, he realizes that death is near and he sits in a position on his throne, kneeling on a cane, on a Asa. And as long as the jinn believed he was alive, they continued to do the work that they would, that Suleiman had ordered them to do. But as his cane was eaten away by, um, um, what is that thing that eats woods? Termites. Termites, termites. Um, That eventually the cane is weakened enough until it breaks and He falls, and once he falls, the jinn realize that he's dead. And once they realize he's dead, there comes a critical moment. Some of them say our arrogance, we now realize that we arrogantly thought we knew everything, but if in fact we knew everything how did we not know that this man is dead for an entire year? And that humbling experience brings him back to God. While others were resentful and became sworn allies to shaitan, sworn to, to derail human beings, but what is the delusion engaged in here is the delusion of a power that is independent from God and an ownership of the world that is apart from what God says you own. And you, now, whether you choose the, to believe this as a parable or as an actual historical event is not the issue. But the issue is to reflect upon if you are in the place of this jinn, when you saw the termites eat the stick and this symbol of power falls, would you have realized your egoism, and uh, in fact, n- n- all claims are o- of ownership, are devoid unless God says so. So that's one. So this, if you, this takes us to fourteen, then immediately it moves on to the second narrative. And the narrative of Saba is more, it, you, you know, the, 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 uh, which one is more philosophically challenging? is depends on, on, on how deep of a thinker you are. But the one about Saba is closer to human experience. And so it might communicate So what is the, the issue about Saba? Saba is a civilization in Yemen that their technology was not iron work and it was not molten copper. Their technology is water. Now, a point to reflect on. We are accustomed to think that there's a technology, if if Suleiman is given knowledge of iron work, that that's different than if Sheba is given knowledge of water work. But what if it's not? What if all technological advancement is, in fact, an inspiration from Allah. Every, how many scientific discoveries have taken place by so-called coincidence or accident? The vast majority, right? The big leaps. And, in fact, as we will see, the Quran tells us more directly that all hell progresses because Allah wills it to progress. And there is no happenstance, there is no coincidence. So Saba, the people of Sabah, have developed this technology about water and they are able to build dams and a complex set of irrigation waterworks that was very advanced for their time. And because they're able to do that, although their civilization starts out something like 500 years before Christ, it continues for about 1,000 years. And by some estimates, clearly over 1,000 years, some even say 1,300 years, 1,400 years. So we're talking about a long expanse of time. And they don't only build a very strong civilization in Yemen, but their empire at one point expands to include parts of Abyssinia, to even go up the coast of Arabia, to even include parts of Sham, parts of Palestine and Syria. The ability to regulate water is a huge technological advancement And leads to a very powerful civilization and a very wealthy civilization. In fact, among the, it's ironic now when you see the state of Yemen, but in the old days, the Yemen was, used to be called Al Yemen Said, the happy Yemen. The reason it was called the, the happy Yemen is because it was supposed to be a paradigm of wealth and riches. Um... It was a, a, a commercial center and where people made, got rich and trade and commerce thrived. Um, and in fact, they, I mean, they, they had developed the, the writing system and the record keeping system was, had, was more advanced than the civilizations of the area at their time. Um, so even their mathematics and their accounting, and and we 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 we've learned more about their judicial system, their legal systems, uh, all of this about five hundred years or so before uh, the Prophet Oh, okay. Some of you haven't prayed us. um okay so before we take the break just picture a very wealthy and rich yemen that lives very happy with all the money and before you break key to that wealth is that their commercial um lines their trade lines are safe and secure. They managed to develop a system that protected their trade lines, their commercial lines from highway robbers. So it's actually a good policing system. Uh, Highway robbers and pirates are always the bane of of trade. Um, And It involved little risk of loss because there were enough um, resting stops along the commercial trade lines so that you are traveling a short distance and stopping for rest and provisions, and you are changing your animals, you're changing your guards, um, you're renting new camels, new horses, whatever. So ultimately, the percentage of, of your commodities that you end up losing in transit is a very small percentage. And that means a lot of wealth in concrete terms. Okay, let's take a five-minute break and pray. Else. Okay. So the, the critical thing with the story of Saba is in the Quranic reference in verse 20, when they say, Lord, increase the distance of our journeys. And this is a good example of where you, you need a good amount of research to find the context of um, the context to understand what the Quranic reference is because the, the people receiving the revelation they had a context and it referred to something that they understood that is not as accessible to us. So what is the the critical issue is, as we said, is that they, they had a dam, they had a good irrigation system, and they had travel routes um, that were secure and that lent themselves to the lucrative trade, which they enjoyed. The main change came when there was a desire to make that trade less egalitarian, less accessible, and more subject or more um, um, amenable to monopoly by the powerful families in or the 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 the, the main centers of power in Saba and so started a, a a interesting process by which one they there was um ambition to extend the trade routes um, aggressively, so that that was one. Second, to extinguish the various settlements along the established trade routes that made it possible for um, less wealthy, less powerful families to compete in the economic system that they had. So basically, trading would become expensive and you would need far more capital or greater capital to be able to trade because the, the, the rest houses or the rest stops that used to exist along the way, one by one, were extinguished. And the way they extinguished them, I mean, you get a lot of different reports some even said that the 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 uh, some of the wealthy family families hired private armies and terrorized the settlements along the route along the route of trade to get them to leave. Uh, there are reports of massacres that took place. The reports of basically threats, where they were told, "You either leave, or we're going to massacre you, or we're going to attack you." But the point is that the r- richer families, or the more wealthy families, w- wanted to monopolize the trade and make the trade um, that you would need more capital to be able to compete, and so any, all these sort of not very wealthy families would, would be squeezed out of the market. And that did happen. And for a while, um, these families were making insane profits, uh, because only those that could afford, for instance, to buy the most expensive camels, the camels that can travel the longest distances without having to change camels every X amount of kilometers where the families that could stay in competition, the families that couldn't do that were squeezed out of the business. And that meant a greater concentration of wealth in Sebat, but Saba, remember, Saba is a civilization that lives for about, a, I mean, for well over a thousand years, and so there is an enormous amount of arrogance about their power, not just in Yemen, but they, they extended their power into Abyssinia. They they had colonies in Abyssinia. They had colonies all along the uh, Gulf of what is now the Saudi Arabia. There, they had colonies even in Palestine and in Sham and the idea that anything that could, uh, you know, if, if, if people were being forced into poverty, too bad. The, the rich families that were making a killing had been on the top of the food chain now for in long periods of times, and this was a a situation that they were very happy with. And the couple of interesting things is that the Quran comments on this by saying, that Satan they turned out to be what Satan thought of them. So it's like saying exactly very similar to what we have with Pharaoh when Pharaoh thinks little of his people so they obey him. Satan sort of thinks, you know, I can I can get these people to go off the rails. And they in fact ended up not disappointing Satan and doing what shaitan wanted them to do. It looked like simply commercial decisions but it led to clear social results in the monopolization of wealth and greater social inequity within Saba. And then comes the calamity that the Quran describes as. Uh, let's see how they translate it. So we tore them completely to pieces, but the, the key here is A, the calamity starts with the crumbling of the, um, uh, the dam, the the, Sabah, the dam of Saba. So the dam itself crumbles and that's the beginning of the disasters. After that, the civilization of Saba is beset by a series of natural disasters. And when the Quran says, kulla they were torn to pieces, but that process of being torn to pieces took about 200 years. The deterioration of Saba from the height of civilization into the mess that they became wasn't an immediate process. And there is a very interesting footnote to the story of Saba. Um, If in Yemen, there are locations, Especially where the the um, uh, ruins of uh, a lot of the sabat ruins are, they are purported to be among the most haunted. The the I mean, if you want a gym experience, Yemen is a very good place to have a gym experience, especially in these areas. I'll come back. To, I'll circle back to this because there's a There's a point to it. Okay, so the delusion of Saba is the height of power and that they are free to enjoy or to manipulate the wealth that they had as they saw fit. God is. We know from the history of Saba that they they they've worshipped different things at different times. They've sometimes were idol worshippers. Sometimes they worshipped the sun. Sometimes they worshipped the moon. Uh, eventually, we have the story of the Queen of Sheba. Then Sulayman. Monotheism seems to be introduced into Saba, and then they move from monotheism to especially during the period of their deterioration into a whole uh, hodgepodge of religious beliefs uh, that are all all over the place. And they start breaking apart and civil wars start breaking out as the resources and especially, especially water becomes more scarce, plants fail. And as the Quran says, the and and the the Quranic expression is is rather fascinating that all, uh, God says that their gardens, their once very um, bountiful gardens that existed on both left and right, are replaced Uh, yeah if you look at 16 So when they turned away, we sent a flood of Aram upon them, exchanged two gardens for two gardens, bearing bitter fruit, tamarisks and uh, lot trees. So the significance of this is that it is consistent with the gradual deterioration in agricultural quality in Saba. It wasn't an overnight thing, but what they were able to grow once, what they they were once able to grow, they were no longer able to grow. And suddenly the soil that they used was not producing what they were accustomed to and what their wealth was built on. Okay. So that's the story of Saba that we're given. And then Surat Saba, from there, moves on to talk specifically about the Prophet والسلام, and those that the Prophet والسلام, engages. And there are two central points. If you look at 23, what it underscores, وَلَا تَنْفَعُ شَفَاعَةُ عِندَهُ إِلَّا لِمَنْ أَذْنَ لَهُ حَتَّى إِذَا فُزِ عَنْ قُلُوبِهِمْ قَالَ مَاذَا قَالَ رَبُّكُمْ قَالُوا الْحَقِّ Wa huwa al azim This is 23. And, um, and no intercession will work with God except those that God gives leaves to, leaves, God allows to intercede. Such that when the terror is banished from their heart, they will ask, what did your Lord say? They will reply, the truth. And God, exalted, is the great. an The terror is banished from their heart. What is it talking about? What terror that is banished from their heart? And whose heart will have terror banished so that they will be asked what did your Lord say? And they will reply the truth. Then that Tell them that you have your deeds and we have our deeds. We're not responsible for your deeds. You're not responsible for our deeds. And, Muhammad, we've sent you to all humanity. Until we get to 32, where... Or at thirty one, sorry, where those who are at the end, Maukufuna Indarabim, Yorja, Badum, Ila Bad in the Kaudiaculu, Lazina Stodifu, Lazina Stagbaru, Laula Antum, Lacuna Mumini. So in thirty one, it takes us to an image of confrontation between. Those who were subjugated, or those who those who were powerful and those who were subjugated, and they blame each other for their situation and their condition in the hereafter. The weaker party will tell the stronger party well, if it hadn't been for you, we would not have been led astray. While the weaker party replies to the, to, while well, the stronger party replies to the weaker party and says, this is nonsense. You, in fact, you were Muslimin, you were criminals. Okay. So hold on to these two points. Terror banished from the heart, and this argument between the so called stronger party and weaker party blaming each other. So we can resolve that tension after Maghrib, inshallah. Before we. We we'll pick up where we left off. Uh, if if we go back to the story of Saba, um what they they say ربنا some in in some sources they even say um, that that. Just so going back to this whole like what that phrase meant longer god extend our travel or that so someone sort of say that that uh, just gives you a sense that the the rich people or the the wealthier in society um wanted to make trade less accessible and more difficult. Um, although that particular re- report that that travel, um, that it used to be that the trade could be conducted on foot, but that the rich classes wanted to extend the routes of trade so that you wouldn't be able to trade without animals um, is not among the, uh, it's not very reliable, but because I found many reports that basically it was, a, it's not, the issue was not the use of animals, but what type of animals, the class of animals, that the longer trader routes required far more expensive animals, that the rich or the poorer classes were, could not afford. And note that in verse uh, 16, when it says "فَأَرَادُوا فَأَرْسَلْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ سَيْلَ الْعَرِيمِ," this is before it says "وَبَدَّنَّهُمْ بِجَنَّتَيْنِ بِجَنَّتَيْهِمْ جَنَّتَيْنِ" that that we we've made their gardens grow foul. It says this expression. فَأَرْسَلْنَا This is normally translated something like torrents or something like that. So in the study Quran it says, um, we sent the flood of Aram. And um, there is, there we in in inscriptions, um, we actually found a reference in archaeological inscriptions to a flood that is referred to as the flood of Adam. But Adam could also in in uh, the. Sabatain language um, mean just simply the land and one of a a, a better interpretation that i prefer al aram could refer to uh, what is known as sayl al khawatir wal west meaning that their, it's not just that their crops started going wrong, but their hearts became full of anxiety. And the, that state of stability and uh, order that they enjoyed started to evaporate so that and this is consistent with the fact that they they eventually descended to civil wars. Uh, they became paranoid. They uh, blamed each other for their problems. Uh, they fought over resources. And of course, when rich people start funding wars against each other, um, and you know, basically. Paying private armies to wage war against one another—it's uh, the end of civilization from there. Okay, so let's go back to where we left off. Hatta is a fusian kulubim, and that image that we get in Surah Sabah, where the mustadhafin and the mustakbirin the 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 more powerful is the, the the weaker is blaming the powerful for their fate and the powerful is telling the weaker um, that you you're to blame. You are yourselves بل كنتم مجر... بل كنتم مجرمين انا نحن صددناكم عن الهدى you, you want to say that we are the ones that prevented you from guidance بل كنتم مجرمين no you are criminals now بل مكر الليل والنهار استامروننا ان نكفر بالله ونجعل له اندادا وَأَصَرُوا النَّدَامَةَ لَمَّا رَأُوا الْعَذَابُ وَجْعَلْنَا الْأَغْلَالَ فِي أَعْنَاقِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا هَلْ يُرْزَوْنَ إِلَّا مَا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ So, 33, it says, بل بَالْمَقْرُ اللَّيْلَ وَالنَّهَارُ Okay? No, it is in fact, the cunning's, it's like the cunning, the massive cunning, but it doesn't tell us who is cunning, who's doing the cunning, and who's tricking whom. It just says it comments about this entire situation with this expression. I should look at that. What is it? Uh, Thirty-three. Plotting by night and day is the way the study Quran translates it. And then all parties are punished. And then 34 comments that indeed it is always. Inna bima ursil tum bi kafirun. It is indeed always a situation that the most well off classes that are first to reject. But think of back to the story of. Suleiman and the jinn. The jinn were subjugated because they believed Suleiman was alive, but in fact, Suleiman was dead for a period of time. And Saba. Their civilization continued for a long time until various parties became greedier and greedier and found numerous elements in society that was willing to support their plans, quote unquote, for expansion and development. It wasn't couched as, let's monopolize wealth. It was couched as expansion and development. And if in fact, the richer classes coerced the poorer classes into disbelief, then we know that God's justice wouldn't punish the poorer classes if they were indeed coerced so what is the message here well if you go back to حتى اذا فزع عن قلوبهم قالوا ماذا قال ربكم some interpretations it tells you that this this is verse uh, twenty-three. That here, uh, it, the, it's the angels who the angels are are uh, in the in the hereafter. Um, they want to intercede, but then they get scared of interceding and say so they don't don't intercede. Well, that, that's nonsense. That doesn't make any sense. It's not talking about angels. Angels are not the ones who are going to be asked, what did your God say? And they say, oh, God said the truth. Well, the angels don't need to be terrified to say God says the truth. It's the fear of God rids people of their delusions. Why is it that the weaker still deserve punishment? It's because it is the delusions of both that made this process work. The delusions of the rich, that they're entitled, and the delusions of the weak, that deferred to the delusions of the rich and empowered their sense of entitlement. Put differently, sometimes oppression requires two culpable parties. The oppressor and the submission of the oppressed. Sometimes it is your own delusions which is the same, very close to the idea of the Pharaoh and the people that follow the Pharaoh. Those who follow the Pharaoh are not defiant towards the pharaoh because in fact they empowered his sense his sense of grandiose and his sense of entitlement and ultimately empowered all his injustice by believing themselves subservient to the pharaoh and how many times do you hear People who are dominated and controlled say, well, the only way that we can be led is by a tyrant. So many people who live under tyrannical systems firmly say, oh, uh, but you know, this is the way we are as a people. We need a tyrant. We need a strong man. We need a despot. They are culpable in their own subjugation because there are delusions of grand grandeur and there are delusions of subservience. Now, as we will see, when it comes to human beings, and I'll show you in a second. Saba starts out by telling us about the delusions of Jin, Very confident to delude it. The delusions of Saba. Then the delusions of people who will start blaming each other for having gone wrong. But within a single human being, you will simultaneously suffer from both types of delusions at different parts, different stages. Sometimes you will shoot yourself in the foot because you think you are far greater than you are. And sometimes you'll shoot yourself in the foot because you don't give yourself its worth or its due. Sometimes you think you are far more entitled to than what you are entitled to because you've lost sight that in fact, you are just a delegate in God's world. And other times you let go of your rational faculties and your moral compass because you follow a mirage, a dream, uh, a plan, a fantasy. Now, and we are presented with what for any student of the Quran knows it's a rather obvious delusion. Those who say, well, we're wealthy, we have a lot of children. This is in 35. We have a lot of children, and, and we, we're wealthy, and. Believing that this brings them closer to Allah, the obvious point that it doesn't. But. Uh, this is 38. I just want to see again. Just to translate it this time, uh, and those who uh, are they just okay. We've talked about the expression right? Okay. okay. that whatever you spend, you are in fact spending on something that God has made you a trustee with, entrusted with, your wealth. And I'll, I'll share with you something in a, in a second about this. And then, another form of delusion. Those who actually thought they're praying and this is a, a, a you know double bizarre layer delusion they thought they're worshiping angels and it turns out that in the hereafter they weren't actually worshiping angels but they were worshiping jinn instead mm. this is 41 how does that happen jinn did interact with them. The, 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 the reason they turned out to have been worshipping jinn is that because of the interactions, they experienced what we call paranormal activity. And because they experienced paranormal activity, they thought, well, we're dealing with angels. And then it turns out that, again, the layers of delusion that they weren't dealing with angels, they were actually dealing with jinn, and that, well, they shouldn't be worshipping jinn or angels, but they thought they were worshipping angels, and in fact, what they were interacting with is jinn. Okay. Okay. As to the issue of spending, it's a long hadith, but... um, Maybe I'll find a way to... The Prophet comments on the ayah in 39, the there the, the, the different versions uh, where we're told that different companions are the ones asking but the 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 sub so the one that is most famous is the one where is Zubair is the one interacting with the prophet okay i'll i'll pair, i'll read it in Arabic, then I'll paraphrase in in English because it it's a little bit long. Uh, it says, "قال الله عبادي أنتم خلقوا أنا ربكم أرزاقكم أرزاقكم بيدي فلا فلا تتعبوا فيما تكلفت لكم به." فلا تتعبوا فيما تكلفت لكم به فاطلبوا مني أرزاقكم وإلي فارفعوا حوائجكم انصبوا إلي أنفسكم أصبوا عليكم أرزاقكم أتدرون ما قال ربكم قال الله تبارك وتعالى يا ابن آدم انفق انفق عليك وأوسع أوسع عليك ولا تضيق فأضيق عليك ولا تخزن فأخزن عليك إن باب الرزق مفتوح لا يغلق ليلا ولا نهارا ينظر الله منه الرزق على كل مرء بقدر نيته وعطياته وصدقته ونفقته من أكثر أكثر عليه ومن أقل أقل عليه ومن أمسك أمسك عليه يا ذبير فكل وطعم ولا, ولا تقصي فيحصى عليك ولا تقطر فيقطر عليك ولا تعسر فيعصر فيعسر عليك ان الله يحب الانفاق ويبغض الاقطار وان السخاء من اليقين والبخل من الشك فلا يدخل الدار من ايقن ولا يدخل الجنه من شك يا زبير ان الله يحب السخاوه uh, and it goes on and on. So what he's saying is the Prophet is coming, to, commenting to in this version, to Zubair, who's one of the prominent companions of the Prophet and he's telling him, in a nutshell, there is no way that you have real iman unless you are willing to spend in Allah's way. And importantly, it is a very anti-stinginess hadith among the many traditions because the circulation of wealth, the reason that men can't own gold in Islam, is because we want wealth to circulate. Hoarding of wealth destroys economies and oppresses people. We want money to work, but more importantly, we want wealth to be shared. And what the Prophet والسلام, is telling Zabir in this hadith is that among the delusions that you, human beings rely on is the delusion that this wealth is theirs, and they're entitled to hold on to what they earn. And in fact, as we know it is emphasized in the Prophet's Sunnah itself, Islam, but also in numerous hadiths, that what is in your hand could be intended for someone else, but it was placed in your hand simply, you as a medium, to get that thing to someone else. And the responsibility in the hereafter, of Allah saying, you know, when I allowed you to make X amount of money, yes, God, well, I intended this money for these 10 people, and you didn't give the money to these 10 people. Um, Well, they asked me, but I didn't think I could afford it. Well, you know, guess what? You were wrong. That was your delusion. Because if you would have spent it, I would have given you X, Y, and Z. Or... um, You saved it because you wanted to feel more safe and secure. Well... I've afflicted you with constant anxiety and lack of ability to sleep, constant restlessness, constant unhappiness, precisely because you held on to what you're not entitled to. So, then comes to the ayah that's the thick for this entire surah and the key, which will surprise surprises a lot of people, or at least should. Hmm. قُل إِنَّمَا أَعِظُكُم بِواحِدَةٍ أَن تَقُومُ لِلَّهِ مَسْنَى وَفُرَادَةٍ ثُمَّ تَتَفَكَّرُونَ وما بصاحبكم من جنة إن هو إلا نذير لكم بين يدي العذاب شديد كل إنما أعظكم بواحدة I will give you one advice أن تقوموا لله مثنى وفراد ثم تتفكروا What an interesting advice. First break away in twos, and then break away in ones. And think, seriously think about your affairs. This prophet, is clearly not possessed. And for the Meccans, he also knew that this prophet is not a liar. And that what he is promising you, that there is accountability, Now, why break into twos and into ones? Why methna wa furada? Saba is talking about a particular type of delusions that only introspection and honesty with self can expose. The delusions that of power and subservience that grow from your interaction or ill interactions with strong social contexts. You are part of a class. You are part of a profession. You are part of a guild. You are part of a trade. You are part of whatever part of, of your little the clique that defined you in the same that way that you are part of the jinn, or you are part of the calm of Saba, or the part of, Saba was broken into several major clans, which united to form the civilization of Saba, and then these clans obviously then broke apart, but that first break away from the social norm, the social norm that feeds these delusions. And first, isolation is hard. So first, be methna, in twos. But then graduate from the twos into one, furada. And have real transparency. And ask yourself. Look at forty nine, forty eight, forty nine. قل إن ربي يقظف بالحق علام الغيوب. Allah. Yaqzifu bilhaq literally like uh, what's um, let's see what the forty-eight is forty eight does cast the truth uh, no it's not cast the truth it's like it's like the 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 Allah that shocks you with the truth, smacks you on the face with the truth, it just gets that your attention was boom, and then يقف بالحق. Now, وما يبدأ الباطل وما يعيد. If you are truly honest and you think about nothing makes sense in terms of your existence without what the surah began with accountability because if you just exist and you do or whatever you do and there is no accountability there is no justice And then the jinn dominating humans, makes sense, fair game. Humans dominating jinns, if they can, fair game. The rich dominating the poor, if they can, fair game. The poor rebelling and murdering the rich, if they can, fair game. Everything is fair game. The only thing that doesn't make it fair game is accountability, and the inevitability of justice. And that's what, wa ma yubdi wa ma falsehood gets you nowhere. It deludes you, it tricks you, it makes you think you've got something. You're on a high for a while, but like the jinn, like the people of Saba, like the people who are blaming each other, it all crumbles. Wakalu amenna be, wa anna lahumutana wishum min Makan in Baid. Wakat Kofaru be him in Kabl, wa yogzophuna bilhai be min Makan in Baid. وحيل بينهم وبين ما يشتهون كما فعل بأشياءهم من قبل إنهم كانوا في شك مريب. Now look at how the surah ends to underline the theme of delusion that I was talking to you about. So, at the end, say, if I have gone astray, I have only gone astray to my own loss. And if I'm rightly guided, it is through that which my Lord reveals unto me. Truly, God is hearing near. God is near. Could though be though see but see when they are terrified and there is no escape and they are seized from a place near at hand? Wa kalu amenna bihi wa anna lahumutana wishu min makanin baid wa anna lahumutana min baid. The Arabic. It's like um, the, the feeling of... It's like your delusions have left you in a place where anything can seize you, can come and grab you. And It is, do you know when people who, I don't know if if any of you have had that experience, but uh, if, if people who have a near death experience and they say we felt complete and utter despair, this perfectly describes that. It's like that point where there is nowhere to go, no escape, and you feel you are at the mercy of something terrifying coming and just grabbing you. 53, and they will say, When they had disbelieved, uh, uh yeah, and when they had disbelieved in it beforehand, while impugning the unseen from a place far away, um, they disbelieved in it. While standing, it's بالغيب is like They were speculating, speaking nonsense. Like you, you're standing there at the shore, and you're just speculating a bunch of nonsense about stuff you don't know. وَحِيلَ بَيْنَهُمْ وَبَيْنَ مَا يَشْتَهُونَ كَمَا فُعْلَ بِأَشْيَعِهِمْ مِنْ قَبْلِ إِنَّهُمْ كَانُوا فِي شَكٍّ مُرِيبٍ And what is the ultimate conclusion? The, the reason for the delusions is exactly a shahwa, the desire, what they covet. What a human being exists coveting, desiring, wanting. But when all is said and done, these desires have led them astray where they've reached nothing. So let's wrap up Surat 7. One of the in Ibn Ajiba oh, where is it? Ibn Ajiba has a little passage Ibn Ajiba says, he has a, you know, like a parable that he's talking about. He says that when shaitan saw, looks at a human being and he sees that human beings are mujawfa. Mujawfa is hollow. A human being as if hollow. And Ibn Ajiba say that, you know, when human beings are hollow, they fill up this hollowness, hollowness, this hollow self with a bunch of egoism, arrogance, delusions, um, fictions about the self. Fictions both for the self and against the self. Fictions of what I can do that are often exaggerations, or what I cannot do that are often also exaggerations. megalomania and insecurity simultaneously. And that shaitan looks at this hollowness and says, this is my play field. Because... Uh, so shaitan basically says, well, you know, this hollowness, I can run around in it. And then Ibn Ajiba said, Walam ya, o- oman la yasudur That unless you block this hollowness with dhikr Allah, shaitan will run amok in it. Shaitan will take your little moments of megalomania and exaggerate them into entitlements to no end. And will take your little moments of lack of confidence and will exaggerate them into deep insecurities to no end. Shaitan will make you a bunch of contradictions so you can't get along with people. And so that you're constantly clashing, not just with people, but even with yourself. You restless to, to to the and Ibn uh, picture this it says it it's coming in and filling the hollowness with the only meaningful thing and that's divinity the only thing that scares shaitan away and then shaitan says ah okay well i can't mess around with this he means it as a parable you know it, it, it's not a literal thing but it's a very useful way of understanding what Surah Sabah is delivering. But Surah Sabah, now go back to the time. If this is, if it's true, and this is after an isra the Muslims that apostated apostated, and the Muslim that remains with the Prophet are the Muslims who are going to have to have a great amount of humility and amicability to get along with the Muslims of Medina. Muslims of Mecca migrate to Medina Do you know if, if, but for the grace of Allah, the migrants of Mecca could have ended up fighting with the Ansar of Medina. You have people, these are tribal societies. So you have people that are coming completely broke. They left everything back in Mecca. And they're going living as guests in the homes of the Ansar. Well, you know, guests after the third day start becoming annoying. Right? They have their own habits. They like to eat at their own time. You know, they don't pick up after themselves. They leave the towels wherever. I don't know, whatever it is. Why didn't it, why didn't the Ansar and the Muhajirun end up fighting with each other? is because of the way, what the, the way the Qur'an raised these people. The way it cleansed their egoism, disciplined them, and said, look deeply within before these major steps are to unfold. Because we're going to build a civilization and learn from the experience of, the, of those in the past. One final note: You know, I we talked about Surah Al and I kept thinking. There is something in the surah about, we know that eventually at different times the, the, the civilization of Saba worships paranormal deities They even engage in sacrifices, but this is towards the, the, the deterioration periods um and the end of the surah when it warns about those who worship and the fact that we were covering Sabbath right after surah al Jinn um Among the things that human beings, the delusions that human beings engage in, is to think that they, and when the more I thought about it, is the delusion that all there is is material existence. And there are no supernatural powers that are constantly at work with who you are as a human being. And that is a delusion. Hmm? Materiality, 5% of existence, as your entire universe It's just stupid. We live in 5%. And to exist in your life as if that 5% is the beginning and the end is just idiotic. And the wise person protects themselves from the world of the seen and unseen. And as far as I know, unless I'm forgetting something, this is Surat Saba. Alhamdulillah.